and welcome back. Uh, my name's Amanda White. I'm the Director of Institutional Content at Connexus Financial. On behalf of Alex and everyone else at Connexus, welcome. Uh, just before we start this new session, a couple of acknowledgements that I would like to make. First of all, to our sponsors for um, making this all possible. I'm just going to name them. Firstly, our gold sponsors, Alfinity Investment Management, Avenir Capital, Cooper Investors, FTSE Russell, Janice Henderson Investors, MLC Asset Management, Pendle Group, Principal Global Investors and Rubico, and our silver sponsors, Arcadian Asset Management, AXA Investment Managers, Black Creek Investment Management and Newberger Berman. Please put your hands together for our sponsors. I um, also just want, would like to make mention of our advisory board who uh, consulted very closely with Alex in the development of this program. Um, again, just really quickly, uh, Greg Barnes, Joshua Bloom, Susan Chow, Bill Dwyer, Nimalayan Govinda, Simon Hudson, Matthew Kempton, Leslie Mao, Nader Naimi, Gerard Parlovet and Susan Roberts, please thank our advisory board. So now we have the pleasure of two international perspectives here this morning. I'm very pleased to welcome Sarah Williamson from Boston, who's the Chief Executive of Focusing Capital on the Long Term, and Klaus Winblad, who's from Copenhagen and the head of the Danish equities at ATP, which is an 881 billion kroner um, asset owner in um, Denmark, which is about 190 billion odd dollars. Um, each of them are going to give a brief presentation on who they are and why they're here, and then we're going to have a, a conversation about um, active long-term investing. So please welcome the panel, and over to you, Sarah. Well, thank you. Thank you, Amanda, and thank you all for being here. Um, I really appreciate uh, the, t the time and attention. So um, what I plan to do is just take a couple of minutes to describe who we are and what we're up to and what we're trying to accomplish, and then share just a snippet of a couple of our uh, most recent research pieces with you, just a, a taste, and then we're going to um, have Klaus talk about a, a, a case study, and then hopefully we'll have a lot of conversation. So um, as Amanda said, um, we, I am the CEO of Focusing Capital on the Long Term. We are a not-for-profit organization that believes that the short-term nature of capital markets has a huge cost to society. And I speak to you as a uh, former, I was going to say reformed, a former fund manager. I was uh, a partner at Wellington Management um, for um, many, many years um, and have worked, um, have been in your uh, chairs most of, uh, most of my career, um, but have been doing this for the, for the last three. And so what we are trying to do is think about what are very practical things that investors and companies can do to be longer term? Because what we hear time and again is, well, I'm long term, but my client, the other guy, whoever it is, is putting pressure on me to be short term. And what the data shows us very clearly is that long term investors do better than short term investors and long term companies do better than short term, short -term companies, both for themselves and for ultimately the savers that they're serving and the communities um, that they operate in. So we have spent some time thinking about what are really the drivers of long-term value creation or conversely, what gets in the way. Um, the, and we think that the, the key things are here on this slide. So the first is 
governance. And that's not going to surprise anybody, but it's pretty hard to have a long-term um, asset owner or asset manager or company if you have a really short-term board. So we've thought a lot about how do you change that, um, that, that pattern of behavior. The second is incentives. Um, if you're paid to be short-term, people will be short-term. That's just the, the, the way the world works. And so we think a lot about incentives and how do we align those with what the ultimate goal of the organization is. Um, the third is engagement between investors and companies, and we can talk a lot more about that, but we think that that's an important way that investors can actually encourage companies to take a longer-term point of view. Um, then we think about strategies that, you know, to use an investment term, have a J-curve, things where you have to invest up front, you have an uncertain future payoff, things like investing in talent, investing in innovation, investing in physical capital projects, investing in risk management. So we think a lot about those. And we think a little bit about public policy, but we think most of this issue is something that market participants can fix. So um, here, this is a, a sampling of some of our research. This is all available on our website, if anyone's interested, fcltglobal.org. Um, so feel free to, uh, to peruse it at your leisure. Um, this is, these are our members, so we are um, approximately, not exactly, but approximately a third, a third, a third, asset owners, asset managers, and companies, and approximately, but not exactly, a third, a third, a third, Americas, Europe, Middle East, Africa, and Asia Pac. So we've been very fortunate to have um, a lot of uh, significant investors and asset owners in particular um, support this work. So the, the two quick snippets of research, um, one of them here is about quantitative investing and what are really the drivers of long-term value creation. And so we have done more analysis than we would like to admit in terms of looking at all of the metrics we can possibly um, get our hands on and seeing what is associated with long-term performance. And so what you can see on this chart are the things that are most associated with positive um, long-term performance and also some of the things that are associated with negative long-term performance. And again, none of these will really surprise you, um, but the, it's interesting to see it come through in the numbers. So the first is greater fixed investment. We see that for companies, higher research quotient, which really means um, productivity of research, board gender diversity, sales growth, and having long-term investors in the stock actually flows through into corporate performance. So you can see that, and then you can also see the other side, over-distribution of capital, that means obviously paying out too much in buybacks or dividends. ESG controversies, we can talk a lot more about ESG. It's hard to find um, associations in the data broadly between ESG metrics and performance, but it's very clear that when a company has an ESG problem, an ESG controversy as it's called, they destroy um, a massive amount of value. So getting out of the way of that is really helpful. Um, providing short-term guidance is a negative um, and having too much leverage. So this is some of the, the work we do. Um, and that's really about the company side. And then the other one that I'm just gonna put up here, and again, we have, we have more on this for anyone who wants to read it, is um, about the investment mandate. So I was an investment manager for a long time, and what I would often say is, well, our clients say they're long-term, but then when something goes wrong, they all of a sudden get shorter term. Um, and uh, that, you know, that's human nature. So what can we do to change that? And so we have done a lot of work with getting asset owners and asset managers in the room together to talk about how do you structure uh, an arrangement between the asset owner and the asset manager that really leads to long-term value creation. And I'll give you two very simple and quick examples. And again, uh, all the details are available to you if you're interested. But one is actually flipping the order of performance returns 
what we have learned from behavioral, all the behavioral psychologists and, and economists is that we as humans anchor on our first number that we see. So if you show a board, you know, quarter, uh, year to date, one year, three year, five year, seven year, by the time you get to, you know, the seven year return or the 10 year return or whatever really matters, you know, no one's paying attention. So uh, a number of um, very forward thinking uh, investors and asset owners are actually just literally flipping that. So you start with the 10 year number and then you go seven, five, you know, whatever. You can still show the numbers, but no one, uh, people won't pay as much attention. So that's a really, you know, simple thing. You won't, could, you could do that this afternoon, re reprogram your spreadsheet. Um, Another really simple thing is, um, is uh, fees that have longevity discounts. So you all know it's quite common in this business to have fees that decline with AUM. Um, but an another way of thinking about it is fees that decline over time. You say, well, why does that make sense? Well, it's, it's common in year three or four, you know, there's a, that people will sell something and then, and then rehire a different manager. We all know that asset owners that stay put tend to do better. So um, lowering the fee is good for the asset owner. It's more likely that they stay put. It's also a lot easier for an asset manager to continue with a current client than it is to go get a new client, a lot cheaper. Um, and so bringing that fee down for longevity also um, can, can make a difference. So those are just two examples of very, very practical things. Again, lots more. Um, but what we're trying to do is poke and nudge um, these markets to be a bit longer term. Um, and those are just a, a couple of, of ways of doing that. So I will stop here and turn it over to Klaus. Thank you, Sarah. Over to you, Klaus. <clears throat> um, thank you, and thank you for the invitation to come here to, uh, to speak uh, today. I'm uh, Klaus Lindberg, and I'm uh, head of uh, Danish and Nordic Equities at, um, at ATP. Um, first of all, I'm also a living proof that IT security is high on the agenda at ATP, so I don't have any slides. <laughs> I was so stupid to save the slides on, on my computer, and, and coming to Australia, uh, the IT security system didn't allow me to access the computer, so <laughs> here I stand with, hopefully I, I can remember what I plan to, uh, to, to say. Just a very short introduction to, uh, to ATP. It's a... Um, it's a uh, public uh, compulsory scheme, um, so um, more than four uh, out of five Danish people uh, are, uh, pay a compulsory contribution to the scheme. Everybody who has a paycheck <coughs> pays into the, um, to the scheme. It is um, a guaranteed uh, scheme, and luckily for us, we have kept on to uh, the hedging of the guarantees, so uh, the number um, Amanda mentioned in terms of our uh, AOM has increased by uh, approximately 50 billion BKK um, over the last few months when interest rates have dropped uh, further. So total assets under management in, in euro terms are uh, around the uh, 120 uh, billion euro um, mark. Um, we have divided the portfolio into two parts, uh, one that takes care of the guarantees and another part, our investment portfolio, um, which is a, a sort of a, the liquidity generated from the hedging of the guarantees um, fund and investment portfolio, uh, which is, um, has a size of around 350 billion uh, BKK. Out of that, we have a current allocation to equities uh, of around um, 
NICP and DKK around 14 billion uh, euros. So let me zoom in on, on, the, on the equity uh, part. We run three different uh, strategies in, the, um, um, uh, in our equity portfolio. Um, in terms of allocation to emerging markets, we are bang on consensus. We have 15% uh, in, in uh, emerging market equities, um, which uh, is a complete, purely passive run uh, portfolio. Um, we have found that we um, don't have the resources and the knowledge to uh, do uh, otherwise. Um, then we have um, a, a global portfolio, which is uh, outside of the Nordic region, which is about 50% of the uh, allocation. That is um, entirely a smart beta uh, quantitative um, approach. Um, where we use ESG as uh, a, a, a quite integrated part of the process. So we both have the traditional signals in the portfolio for the smart beta strategies, but we also use ESG signals to uh, run the portfolio. Once more common there that, that using uh, those signals to uh, change the uh, carbon exposure to, to the portfolio, we have actually been able to lower the carbon exposure in the portfolio by, by more than 20%, 20, uh, 20%. So, so that's quite an interesting angle. Then coming to the, um, the, um, the uh, strategy I'm uh, responsible for, which is the um, Danish slash Nordic um, equities, which is uh, entirely a um, tra tra traditional fundamental loan only a type of um, type of uh, strategy. And you say, wh why have we chosen to, to have the different levels of, of, um, of strategies? First of all, they are all uh, in-house driven. We hardly have any external uh, mandates. We have a very few uh, for, for specific purposes, but in general, we don't use external ma managers, but do it all. Um, uh, in-house, but you could say the different styles in the strategies is a lot of, you can use the word uh, proximity. So where we feel we have the strong knowledge about the companies with relationship, uh, close re relationships with the companies and, and have a really deep understanding on, on what's going on. We have the fundamental uh, approach to the uh, asset management. Um, in the global equity portfolio, we have found that the smart beta approach was the right one. We have that we have the right skill sets in-house to do a good uh, quantitative uh, approach. But to copy um, the uh, strategy we run in, in the Danish portfolio into a global context would, in our mind, be far too uh, resource uh, uh, demanding, and we wouldn't lack probably not have the competences uh, in-house to do it in a proper way and found that the smart beta way was uh, the right one. And again, the passive strategy in emerging market, we thought that was the right one because we would have a hard time establishing 
the quant guys in the, in the global team, uh, one of their arguments is that the quality of data in order to build a proper a smart beta uh, strategy in that region would be too, uh, too difficult for them to, uh, to do and we have chosen not to go, to, uh, go outside to find man, uh, managers to, to do it. But maybe to zoom in on, on, uh, on, on, on the strategy I am uh, pursuing, ATP has had a domestic home bias for um, a very long period of, uh, of time. Um, uh, we have had a more significant home bias than we have at the, at the, at the moment, but with an asset allocation to the fund uh, to be 30, 35% of, of our equity exposure, we still have a quite significant uh, home bias. Um, 20 years ago, we uh, ATP owned um, close to 10% uh, of the Danish stock market. Um, when I took over uh, the responsibility for the portfolio, we owned 4% of the Danish stock market. Now it's significantly less, but it gives us, us a background of very close relationship with uh, uh, the Danish corporate society. The strategy we are, we are doing is that we have a team, we are a team of uh, seven, seven people which handle all aspects of the investment process, meaning we do the investment, we have the responsibility of uh, active ownership, and we have the responsibility for ESG uh, issues. We have a large ESG teams which we work close, uh, close to, uh, closely together with, but the actual responsibility is in, the, in my team. The, so the importance of that is that there's only one voice speaking to the company. The company that we are investing knows exactly who they are talking to, um, what are the messages, and what's the philosophy behind. Because they, they have known how we think for a very long period of time, so they can rely on that if we have a certain view on a given issue, that's also the, the in the more longer term, the, 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 um, the approach we will take to a given uh, issue. One of the problems with a lot of the engagement going on where you have separate teams that uh, you have a portfolio manager who does the investment and speaks to the uh, CFO and, and, and so on and gives different uh, opinions, but when it comes to the uh, ATM, it's actually somebody else who does the, the voting and makes it extremely difficult for the company to know, you know what, what's actually the, uh, the, the, what should we actually do. We speak to the portfolio manager, he says this is all right, but then some proxy guy come and say, no, no, it didn't uh, work out uh, after all. I think it's very important in this relationship that we can, can have a close dialogue with the companies uh, about the different issues. Does necessarily have to be ESG issues, but also strategy development and, and, and when will we be able to go in and participate in a, in a, in a capital raising exercise in if, the, if the company does an acquisition, they'll more or less know how we feel and think about these issues and we can actually have a confidential discussion uh, about these issues before um, it, um, it, uh, it uh, takes, uh, takes uh, place. How do we then benefit from, from this uh, process of being a long-term uh, active uh, investor into these uh, companies? I actually think that we get a very good understanding on, uh, on where the risk and opportunities are in the, in the, in the company. 
And I think if I've had uh, the slides with me, I, I would be able to show um, some returns uh, that, that uh, at least for historical purposes, we have been able to um, generate quite a nice return out of it. And the way we have done it is not so much bidding on, on uh, a few quarterly results, but it has been situation where we at an early stage in a company's development has been able to, where that, you, know, you all know this, this situation where everybody hates a given company. You know, they have not delivered, they have done all of this, so everybody has lost the, 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 the uh, confidence in the management and so on. But by having a very thorough understanding of this risk, it creates some opportunities to go in and actually do significant in, in investments in a company at a very early stage in the process. And I think that's actually the ability where we have been able to generate some, some very uh, significant uh, returns. So the engagement and the active ownership is not uh, is both a question of compliance, but it's also a question of generating the knowledge to generate return to the, to the uh, portfolio. And that has been at least my philosophy about running the Danish and the Nordic uh, equity portfolio for the last um, 14, 14 years. And as a final remark, I, 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 uh, I was flipping through um, some of our reports just to remind myself. In our global portfolio, we actually do what we call thematic engagement. And don't ask me about the results, but we have actually, being in Australia, had a thematic engagement on the rights for indigenous people. So that would be my final remark. Thank you, Klaus. I might just really quickly recap, just in terms of the way you structure the portfolio from my understanding. So it's, for the total portfolio, split into a hedging and return-seeking portfolio. The hedging is the significant part of the portfolio. Then within return-seeking, equities makes up about half, which is split between global equities, which is smart beta plus ESG, and then domestic and Nordic, which is a fundamental in-house, very long-term active shareholder approach, which you can hold, you know, hold your hand on your heart and say, that's true. Yeah. Can you really do that for the smart beta part of the portfolio? And how do you manage the, the dichotomy between that in terms of being a long-term investor? I, I, I think I, I think there's a clear choice here that that yes we would claim to be more long term in the domestic portfolio than we could claim in the in the in the in the quant strategy because if if a signal pops up uh, in 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 in, in uh, that make us change the composition it is for 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 full global portfolio it it's uh, it's uh, it's diversified but we try to limit the number of of uh, sh uh, different shares we have in the portfolio we have more or less 400 400 shares in the, in the portfolio um it's very small holdings each of them compared to the size of these uh, companies and i would say our approach to how we work with ESG issues, governance, voting at the AGM is long-term, but the holding is not. I, it would simply be wrong to say that it is because the, the, guy, the, 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 the guys that are, uh, it's, it's four, four guys with a very high uh, mathematical competences 
that uh, does the composition of the um, of the portfolio, and, and if uh, if a sickness pop up, that they need to change the composition of the portfolio. That's what they do, and that's what their job is. To claim that is a long-term holding in the individual stocks would, would, would not be correct. So, Sarah, interested in your view on that in terms of the work you've done around quant and whether or not you can be a quant and a long-term investor at the same time. Mm -hmm. And you've also done some work on managing long-term and short-term risks. Mm -hmm. So can you comment on, on both of those in terms of, you know, these are the sort of daily problems of, of investment management and how, you know, you've approached those in your research? So in terms of whether um, a long-term quant is an oxymoron, I think, I think it's a really good question because, of course, you know, quantitative managers like to have as much data as possible, and the shorter term you are, the more data points you get. Um, so there is a very clear, uh, and as you said, you know, you see a, a signal pop up, um, of you want to act on that, right? And that, and that makes sense. So I guess the way that I think about it is sort of in, in two ways. One is, most of the metrics that we have today are very short-term oriented, and people tend to be trying to pick up pennies around something rather than trying to think about, in a quantitative way, which companies are going to succeed over the long term. But we know that even in the most active fundamental management, there are very um, important quantitative tools used, whether it's a screen or other model building, et cetera. The, the old-fashioned way of managing money where you, you know, took a blank piece of paper and said, went and talked to companies and said which one seems smart and has a good strategy is, you know, that's gone, right? We, we, that's, that doesn't really happen in the same way. So I think that the trick for long-term investors who are increasingly relying on quantitative tools is how to ensure that they're also including long-term signals. Because the challenge with the very short-term mindset is that you can sort of you know, miss the forest for the trees. You see all this stuff right now, but you, you miss the fact that a company is going to succeed really well in the future or, or fail. So that's how we kind of think about that. And one of the things we've been working on is what are some of those metrics? Many companies don't disclose them, but increasingly investors are using, uh, are relying less on sort of traditional um, metrics that are disclosed by a company and are relying much more on other sorts of signals that are not typically disclosed by the company, such as, you know, scraping um, social media and, you know, all of the things you, uh, you well know about of, you know, satellites taking pictures of how many cars are in a parking lot and all those kind of stuff. So I think that what's actually the, the, the best quant investors are thinking in a long-term way but still relying on quantitative data and trying to figure out which one of those are signals um, about the long term. And of course, in terms of the risk, the, the question about risk is always, what is risk for, for you, for the decision maker? And risk is often you know, shorthand of volatility over a year or less. Um, that's not really risk for most people. For, for most people, risk is, um, does something blow up? Do they get fired? Do they meet their liabilities if they're in a liability matching? Do they do better than their peers? So one of the things that we have thought um, a lot about is defining the purpose of a fund um, and wh what is it really trying to do and then lining up the risk metrics against that rather than just taking, you know, the, the usual things that, uh, that, that come out of a, of a risk program, which 
which may or may not be um, appropriate for a particular fund or investment. Us, you also mentioned um, you own, I think, 4% of the local market. Has size been your biggest influence in terms of um, dialogue with corporates? Or what are some, some of the other levers? What are the effective tools that you've used in terms of changing long-term behaviour of, of companies? I, I clearly think size in the past has uh, benefited us in terms of building the uh, relationship and, 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 and uh, in a lot of instances, even though our holdings today are significantly smaller than they were 10 years ago, I, I think, I think we clearly we have benefited from keeping those relationships because there's been history built up and we've been able to, um, to, to benefit from, uh, from, uh, from, from that. So yes, I, I think you know it. 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 it um, um, the good thing about it is that that I think we have a reputation where even a new 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 uh, new companies coming to the market has some sort of idea of who HP are, what we stand for, and and therefore also in in new investments we are uh, able to to uh, use some of the same tools that we have used in the past in the, in the Danish portfolio. And the entire idea about building up a Nordic portfolio is to take some of the uh, methodologies we have used in the Danish portfolio and, and, and sort of export them, them to the uh, Nordic uh, region. Um, it's, it's, it, we can't do it to the fully same extent, but, but uh, we do actually have a, quite a number of, of uh, smaller Swedish holdings where we, uh, we have fairly large positions. Um, um, uh, you know, this s s Swedish corporate system where they use external uh, nomination committees. Uh, I think we are participating in, in four, four, four different uh, of, uh, um, companies where we are, we are, we are on, the, uh, on the nomination committee and also dealing with, with, with governance issue in that, in that aspect. So, to some extent, that has actually worked well in trying to 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 take that uh, further also outside of Denmark. So, you a third of your membership is corporates. Mm -hmm. What do the corporates say in terms of you know how they like to be engaged with and and what's irritating for them? <laughs> um, mm -hmm. What works from from their point of view? Mm -hmm. So, I think that, um, and I'm you know generalizing, but I think that the corporates in general view the investment community as one big amorphous thing. And they don't um, uh, make a great distinction between who's a sell side, a broker analyst, who's actually a shareholder, um, who might be a shareholder. Uh, and one of the things that we see, and it, it sounds like in um, Denmark it's the opposite of what you're doing, but one of the things that we see globally is sometimes the big long-term investors are actually the most quiet. So if you all, I'm sure many of you have been on um, quarterly conference calls with companies and um, they go through their usual thing and then they say, any questions? Well, I mean, I know at least my, at my former firm, we, we would never ask questions on those calls because that company was probably coming into our office next week and we thought, you know, rightly or wrongly, that we'd done our homework probably better than some of the other people on the call and we had a clever question and so why would we ask a long-term strategic question about the company? Um, because we'll, we'll answer that in a different forum. 
But what happens is then you get all these short-term questions, you know, sort of how many widgets have you produced over the last weekend? And the, the company CEOs hang up the, the phone and go, oh my goodness, my investors are so short-term. So I think that's a, um, a big complaint. And uh, of course, the, the best um, investor relations teams understand who their real shareholders are. They understand what that roster looks like over time. They spend a lot of time talking to them. But getting through that noise, I think, it is pretty hard. The other thing, if you, you, know, you ask about what drives them crazy, is in the ESG space, a lot of companies have spent a lot of time um, and thought um, on a sustainability report or what they think are, uh, you know, that what they think are important measures of some of the things that they're doing um, on ESG matters, and they're often interacting with all sorts of groups that have a view about what they should be doing on some of these issues. And the common complaint is they do all this work on ESG metrics and then their investors don't care. They, you made the point about the difference sometimes between the governance people and the portfolio manager. You know, they walk into the room and talk to the portfolio manager and they ask them every question they can think of about the financials and the strategy and where it's going and they don't mention ESG. And I think that that is frustrating for um, companies uh, that, that it sort of feels like people are talking um, uh, across one another sometimes. So we'd like to, you know, close that gap and be able to have that conversation in the room. That makes sense to both parties. Might open it up to the floor at this point. Does anyone have a question for Klaus or Sarah? No, we'll just, if you do, oh yes, Martin. Just borrow one of these microphones from the table. Probably better from this microphone, if you, if you don't mind. <laughs> Sorry, deeply apologies, I forget it in a second. Just as a, a clarification of language, uh, when we talk about long-term investment, you both noted it and talked about it. Um, if I have an investment philosophy that says I like to buy value as a factor, is that a long-term investment? Because I will rotate companies in and out of that strategy. I will maintain my factor exposure, which is the value. So that will be my long-term exposure. I'll be a long-term investor for value. But I might be a very short-term investor for individual companies. Mm -hmm. Because a co company will come in and out of my portfolio as they meet a value standard or not meet a value standard. I get a sense that both of you, the way you describe long-term investment was buy and hold a company specifically, but not necessarily buy and hold an investment philosophy or a particular factor or any of other manifestation investments. So I was hoping from either one of you to comment on this. I'm happy to comment on that and see what your comment is. The, I guess what I think about as a long-term investor, first of all, is a forward-looking investor, somebody who is trying to figure out what the com where a company is going strategically um, and be interested in, in other words, not playing the quarter, not saying, okay, well, are they gonna you know, be a couple pennies ahead or behind and, 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 and play with that. Um, thinking about that forward-looking mindset on a company basis, I would argue is different from investing in a long-term factor. So it depends which side of the coin. If you're looking at it from the company's point of view, they would look at you and say, that's not a long-term investor because they, you know, he's coming in and out of my stock. Now, I do think there's a little bit of difference between um, somebody who owns a company or even researches a company for a long period of time and may have price targets. And, and there are many companies where um, you know, the price has changed more than the fundamentals, right? And, a, and a, uh, a long term investor may have a sense of where a company should be priced and they'll, they'll sell it when it gets too uh, expensive and buy it when it gets cheap again and so on. 
That I think is okay. So the way that I think about my shorthand is um, it's about name turnover uh, rather than um, actual portfolio turnover. And it, it's about making a bet on the long-term future of that company rather than trying to um, play a short-term volatility uh, flip. I, I actually quite quite agree on 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 on, um, on that, and, and and it's it's a question of of, of are you playing uh, a long term return or are you playing the next quarterly uh, result? And 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 uh, on the market, we do changes in the portfolio um, all the time. I think it's important to have a, a constant view on. Um, on, uh, on, on, on where the fundamentals versus ETF price uh, is. And of course, if that, if the stock becomes overly uh, uh, valued and so on, it, 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 there's absolutely no problem in, in, uh, in, uh, in selling it. And, and there's no contradiction in that, on, 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 uh, from that to being um, long-term. I think the big problem is whether you, your main strategy is to beat the quarterly result or whether it's to have a view on where the strategy fundamentals and so on are going over a longer period of time. Sarah, I might turn to you. You mentioned your toolkit that you're developing for mostly asset owners in this context, but managers as well. And one of those ideas is to flip the mm -hmm. uh, timeframes of, of, of measurement. Can you talk a little bit about some of the other tools and actually whether or not anyone's using them? Mm -hmm. So are, are there asset owners around the world that are actually following your advice and taking this up? Yeah. yeah, so I think that, you know, again, one of the things that we have learned as as from the from the behavioralist is that as humans, we uh, anchor, and I'm sure many of you have, have seen these studies where you can be um, told a number and, or you touch a card and then, then you think the card is more valuable. So we, we have these funny tendencies just in the way we think. And so leaving aside the computers, but the, the, the way that people think. And one of the things that is shown very clearly across languages, across cultures, is that people anchor on the first thing that they uh, see in a particular conversation or in a particular scenario. And then they have to be pushed off of that um, to get away from that, which is very different than treating you know, five, five things that are presented in order um, as five equal things. And this is just sort of the way the human brain works. So I'll give you an example for asset managers. Asset managers often say, my clients are really short term. They focus on this quarter. And so I usually say to them, well, what does your quarterly letter say? Because most quarterly letters that I've ever seen say something like, dear client, this quarter, we returned, you know, 4.2% versus a benchmark of 3.8. And then you try to have a conversation with them about um, sticking with you through a downturn or um, through a portfolio manager change or something like that. And it, it's just, it just doesn't really work. And the same thing is true with these numbers. And so I'll give you one example, um, which went even further. CalSTRS, the big um, California plan, switched their numbers. Um, and then they also, which wasn't our idea, it was their idea, they put the long-term numbers in a big font and they put the short-term numbers in a little small font, which was actually quite clever. But it, it's just a signal, okay, this is the number that's important. The 10-year number is what's important. This is what we want to be measured on. This is what matches up with our liabilities. 
And if somebody wants to raise a question about the quarterly number, you know, that's fine. And we've all been in meetings where somebody goes down the numbers until they find the negative and, po and poke on that. And that's fine. But again, you've anchored the conversation around what the actual purpose is, which is producing um, significant long-term return. Great. Well, we're nearly out of time. Anyone have one last burning question? Yes, Brendan? Oh, I've got two. If, we, if you're quick, we can do them both. Okay, really quick one then. Uh, so one of the biggest long-term impacts on our world is going to be climate change. So if you're an active long-term fundamental investor, do you sell anything that's got any carbon in it? Uh, I'll give you my super quick, question, quick answer to that, which is, um, unfortunately, people can make money on, uh, in declining businesses, and so you really have to make a decision about what is the time frame and how do you um, avoid assets that will be um, damaged in some way. I mean, you don't want to invest in the bridge that's going to be underwater, right? That's sort of investing 101. Um, and then the other thing that we're thinking a lot about is how do you deploy capital against climate solutions because, you know, I, I don't know, but I would guess some smart tech people are going to figure out ways to really uh, offset this, and a lot of people will, and people, some people will make a lot of money from that. So um, I think it's, there, there should be carbon mitigation for all sorts of reasons, but it, on a pure investment basis, those are two ways to think about it. Don't, don't make a bad investment and, and, and move capital to the things that, that hopefully will pay off both for society and for the investor. Klaus. Uh, to some extent, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, lucky that we have a very large number of, uh, of uh, where sustainability is very, very high on, on, the, on the agenda. Uh, Earth has become the second largest company in, uh, in, in Denmark, and there are several co companies with a very strong profile in, in, uh, in, in this aspect. So you could say that, that, that the climate exposure to my portfolio is fairly uh, limited. That being said, it is a factor that we actually uh, um, look at in, in, in quite a, a detail and discuss with the companies what they do and what, what targets they have to reduce uh, carbon uh, exposure. But, but, but to some extent, given the focus on, 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 on this uh, issue, we are in a quite good spot. Unfortunately, we're out of time that we can catch up in the break. Um, thank you very much for your generous uh, presentations. Please thank Klaus and Sarah.